Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to welcome author and journalist Helena Andrews Dyer to the podcast. Helena is a senior culture writer at the Washington Post, whose latest book is The Mamas, What I Learned About Kids, Class, and Race from Moms Not Like Me. She's also the author of Reclaiming Her Time, a biography of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and Bitches the New Black, her memoir and essays that's been optioned by Shonda Rhimes. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, Marie Claire, Glamour, among other publications, and she's appeared on a host of TV news programs. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Rob, and their two daughters, Sally, who's five, and Robin, who's three. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Helena. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am so happy to have you here, and thank you so much for joining me. So... I spent over 15 years in New York City parent groups where for 99% of the time, I was the only black woman in the group. Mm. I mean, the group is all women all the time, but we always called ourselves parent groups. Right. Go figure. Yes. Even though it was a mom group. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) So when I heard about your book and a shout out to my sister-in-law, Julia Murphy, who texted me as soon as she saw you on a talk show, she said, talk to this person. So first of all, when I heard about the book, I knew I had to read it. And secondly, I knew I had to have you here on the podcast. And so I devoured your book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Not only because it focused on the concept of parent groups, of which I am a full devotee, (laughs) but also because you use the mom group concept to explore so many important issues about race, identity, and class, and the issues that came up not only directly out of the group, but just out of your experiences as a black mom. Yes. So... There are so many issues you talked about that I could instantly relate to, and frankly, some not so much, but (laughs) in so doing, you made me really reflect on my own experiences and truly appreciate yours. So I can't wait to talk with you about all of this. So let's get started. All right. So I generally start podcast conversations by asking my guests how they were parenting. Mm. And so before we dive into the book, here's what I know. You are from Los Angeles, California, and you're the only child in, in your words, a hippie single mom. (laughs) Yes. You went to Columbia University for undergrad, and you got a master's in journalism from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. So it sounds like education was a priority for your mom and for you as you were growing up. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. I've never, I don't know if I've ever kind of like synthesized how I was raised. I mean, I know how I was raised. My mother is, as I say in this book and in my first book, Bitches in New Black, she is a hippie, you know, white light energy, pot smoking, out and proud <laughs> lesbian woman, right? And she raised me with that sort of freedom and sense of identity and coming as your full self. But it was just the two of us and she didn't have a ton of money. And she arranged me very free range before that was a term, (laughs) right? And we spent, we're from Mm -hmm. Southern California, Los Angeles, South Central LA. Now they call South LA the rebrand, quote unquote. But we spent a very large part of my childhood on Catalina Island, which most people have never heard of. Uh, It's a small island off the coast of California. We lived in Avalon, which was the quote-unquote main town. And by main town, there were 2,000 people there who lived there full-time, right? And I was the only Black child in our town on the island. So that obviously presented (laughs) um, its own range of 
issues, but it was also a very traditional upbringing in a sense that, you know, we felt very safe always. Nobody locked their doors. You know, I could stay out all day long. You know, when it was summertime, she woke up, went to work, and I woke up and figured myself out until she got off of work at six. You know, we didn't have a lot of material things, but my mother knew that education and getting me the best quality education, not just that she could afford, but that she could, that she had access to, right? Because I went to private school for middle school. When we moved back to Los Angeles, I went to private school for middle school and high school and it was expensive, but she figured it out because she knew that that was one, because she wanted me to be challenged in that way. She wanted me in that type of environment. And she knew that it was a way for me to have freedom, right? Freedom of choice for the rest of my life. So Yes, education. She's very dedicated to my education, but she was also very involved and she took the job of parenting extremely seriously. So when she could be, she was building sets. When I started in the crucible, you know, she was in the audience at my cheerleading competitions. Like she was there when she could be there and everyone knew my mom. Everyone knew her as a parent who did not play about her child, basically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so clearly your achievement is, is evident by your schooling and you, you responded to that well. As you were a child, did her expectations feel like a boost? It sounds like they did, but were they a burden in any way? I mean, did you feel like this was a way that you were going to, if you ever thought about having kids when you were young, did you feel like, oh, this is, this is exactly what I'm going to do when I have children? I think so. I mean, she wasn't the type she wasn't a tiger mom, right? <laughs> she wasn't the type who was like, you need to read five chapters of this by this date, or even someone who like would sit down and do my homework with me. Like she just had very high expectations that she expected me to meet. And I think I just met them, you know, I just figured out how I would do it because she had so much confidence in me and my ability and my intellect that it was something she never allowed me to question. Right. And I, bring that into my parenting with my girls. It's just, just the other day, Sally said to me, I forgot what we were talking about. She was joking. And she said something, she's like, well, I don't think I'm very smart. And I was like, what, what are you saying? (laughs) I was like, Sally, never say that about yourself. And she was just like, ha ha, just joking. Because she knows that that would like drive me crazy. So yeah, I think that I never felt as if I couldn't live up to her expectations. And they were never really like blatantly stated. I remember at one point when I was in, I want to say fourth grade, she told me she wanted me to be an architect because I did not like math. I was never a huge fan of math. And I think she saw that and didn't want to reinforce this idea that girls don't like math and science, right? And this is before I think people even realized this was something that we need to emphasize with young women. But she knew the, the pushback was so strong. She like let it go. And she's like, all right, just here's a journal, here's a bunch of books. I know that's where you're going, you know? And I was (laughs) writing books at like eight. Like she was just like, all right, this is the path, you know? (laughs) And I I think that that's what we try to do with the girls. Our our kids are still so young, but it is recognizing one, that we want to expose them to everything. And that was also my mother's philosophy. It was like exposure. I did all of the things, dance, soccer, music, little league. She sent me away to Girl Scout camp. It's like she had me everywhere (laughs) all the time. (laughs) But then I think she also recognized what I was truly passionate about and she would lean into those things, right? She had this, this 
theory, she would say, you'll have to do something for like the season, right? So if it's like, I was doing Little League, I was terrible. I was horrendous and I hated it. <laughs> but she was like, you got to finish out the season. That's it. We don't have to do it again next year, but just finish out the season. And that was always her marching orders, if she had any, was just like, oh, we're going to try it. Try it first. I'm totally fine if you hate it, but we got to try this out and we got to see it through. Mm-hmm. I just have to stop one second just to say that is such a great parenting perspective when you want your child to be exposed to something and to start by saying, I hope you like it, but if you don't, we have to finish out the season is so key because I mean, parents, I remember years and years ago struggling with if my kid hated something, do I make them stay with it? Is it the discipline they need? Mm -hmm. Or do I, you know, or do I torture them? Uh, Or do I, (laughs) do I relieve them from the torture? And I love that concept of finish out the season because if you go in knowing that's what you got to do, you can say, okay, I really don't like this, but (laughs) this is the deal. I always ask people about parents' expectations because, and then this relates definitely to what you talk about in your book. I'm a big fan of huge expectations. I mean, my parents certainly had big expectations for me, but there's always that sort of line, which I always like to explore sort of where it is, the line between having expectations for your child and having an anxiety about those expectations mm-hmm. or being ang- or being concerned when the child doesn't meet them or doesn't seem to be meeting them in, in your view. So similarly to you, my mom, who was a public school teacher, exposed me to everything, everything. So I love that. I, I really, I love that your mom did that for you. And it sounds like you have all intentions of doing that for your daughters as well. Absolutely. And it's an actually a concept that I explore in the book because it is a there's a sociological term about parenting this way to call it intensive mothering. And a piece of that is also called concerted cultivation. And it's this idea that as we move through generations, it became less and less certain that your children would be of the same socioeconomic status that you were, right? They could slide backwards. And when it comes to African-Americans and people of color, the rate of of that is higher. And so you have this type of mothering, especially with working moms, middle-class and upper middle-class moms, where they think, okay, I got to expose. Exposure is the key, right? Because they think their children are going to be in that same class. They want them to be in that same class or, or, or something higher. And so your adult life, you'll have all these options, right? So you want to show your child that you have all these options, that, you know, there, the sky is the limit, Right. And it can backfire, as you say, because you could start overscheduling. You know, now we talk about the overscheduled child. I was like, now we have ballet and karate and piano lessons and this and this and this and this, because you're trying to make sure you're plugging in all the right things. And it can be very intense. And that is something that I witnessed in my neighborhood, right? In Washington, D.C. It's all these type A women who are just plugging these things into their children from six weeks old, right? And I think... I dove into that in one way, and I discussed that in the book, and also realized in talking about how my mother parented me is that, yes, she tried to expose, but she didn't push. You know, she was opening the door to things so I could see that I was validated and every room was accessible to me, right? But she didn't need to push me through every single one. And I think I've tried to keep that with me in that sense with me as I parent my daughters, because you can see it around you as people going, people are going overboard. And um, I don't want to do that. So I want to move to your book. 
And you've already talked about this sort of more intentional, intensive parenting style. One of the things that I've heard you say and that I fully, fully agree with is that there are those of us who are drawn to the style. I mean, you got it from your mom to some degree, as I did. And you start your perception of being a mother as wanting to expose your child to everything. And then, as you just said, you see that there's this sort of cliff you can jump off and it gets really crazy. (laughs) But what I was interested in, what came out so clearly from your book that I could really relate to was this kind of perception of black moms that you didn't really have to do yeah. all that. I mean, you know, nobody wanted to be type A or be perceived as being that type A. That was sort of, you know, for, for white women to do. But as you talk about in your book, and as I certainly experienced, if you really are focused on showing your child from a young age the world, it involves some intensive parenting. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you definitely, you know, all of the studies talk about how important it is to pour things into your children when they're really, really young, because mm-hmm. that stuff sticks. And I, I can tell you, I mean, my children are 30, 27, and 23, and it sticks. There is a kind of an interesting kind of, not quite stigma, but a divide between black moms who are seriously focused on all this stuff and, and ones who want to at least be perceived to be more chill. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you talk, you, you talk about this in your book a lot because you have your super cool moms mm-hmm. who's the moms of the, the multiracial group in which you are the only African-American, yes. I think, or, or initially. And then you have black mom groups. How did you handle early on that sort of recognizing that divide and then figuring out how you were going to deal with it? Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things that I found in like being in this journey, right, that I'm still very much deep in. And in writing the book, like, so I try to tell the arc of my mom group um, evangelism uh, from the beginning, which is when I first got pregnant and became publicly pregnant. When people knew and we wanted to have this baby and all these things, the first thing a colleague, a white colleague said to me was, oh, are you in the neighborhood? group? Are you on the Facebook group? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she like invites me to this group, right? Because of course you have to be invited. It's this private group. And then it's this whole world of information and free for porch pickup and here are the good daycares and oh, my nanny is available and all of this stuff I knew nothing about. And the world was so white. And so immediately I thought, oh, this is not for me, even though I know it is for me because I want this information. I am absolutely this type of type A person. Right. But I was like, oh, it's not for me. It's just a bunch of white ladies. So I just kind of like lurked and creeped around. And my husband is a huge character in the book, obviously. It's a huge part of my life. And I would just complain to him about them and just totally deride them. And he was like, you know, you want to go, you know, you want to go to the park meetup, you know, you want to go to the baby matinee, just go. So I finally go. And once I'm in it, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm still the only black mom. Right. But you know, in all my years, I have been the only black person in many situations. So like, I know what that's like, but I felt like I had, we connected on this way that we were all maniacs about this thing. Right. However, And I think I don't call it this in the book, but I do talk about this as I talk about the book, like my quote unquote invisible diaper bag, right? The take on the the invisible backpack, my invisible diaper bag has so much more in it than these other women, right? And they'll never understand that. And I knew that. So the trust, the true trust, the true connection, there was always like a wall there. 
And as I continued my journey in this neighborhood group and in the closer moms that I got to know, we all had kids again. We're spending our maternity leaves. Of course, we're all privileged and we have these long maternity leaves together. Um, I became closer and closer with them and understanding that we had a lot of connection, even though there was still a wall. And then obviously the pandemic happens, George Floyd happens, and our some of our connections became deeper because some people had the patience to have uncomfortable conversations, right? But I think from the very beginning, going back to your question, is I saw what they were doing and how intense it was and knowing I'm the same. I want to go to baby yoga. I want to, I, I'm going to pay for the baby music class for my eight week old child. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to do all these things, mm-hmm. but because the image of it was so white, I felt like, wait, is this a white thing to do? Or is it just a mom thing to do, right? And as I started right. to move into so many different mom groups, because that there I'm in a million, I saw it's not just a white thing to do. That's just what we've been told, right? That's just the image. Because my black mom friends, they're in it too. They're doing, you know what I mean? They are just as intense. Just like I talked to Deneen Milner in my book, who is an incredible author and publisher of children's books featuring black and brown joy. And Deneen said to me, you know, my mother was doing intensive parenting too. You know, she was helicoptering. It just looked different, right? No, she wasn't at every PTA meeting. She had to work. But trust, she knew what was going on. And she kept her, her hands were on the steering wheel, right? And it just looked different for us. And it looks different in our community. But we are just as involved. We take this just as seriously. And I think I found that. And, and then once my groups, you know, different people started moving to the neighborhood because my neighborhood is very gentrified. And I tell, there's an entire chapter in the book just about gentrification. And then I had this closer black mom group. And that group, those ladies are doing the same thing. Yes, we want the ballet class, but we want to make sure the teacher is black. And we want to make sure that there are at least four other black girls in the class. You know, we're doing that extra work. We're doing all the intensive plus X, right? Just recently, we we had a, a WhatsApp chat in my black moms group about um, fall break, right? And we're like, oh, what are you guys doing on fall break? Like, sh- should we go to this camp, this STEM camp for two days or blah, 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 this tennis camp? What are people doing? And one of them, one of the women who's a good friend of mine, has been a friend of mine since college, who, who lives in my neighborhood now too. And she said, oh, well, we found cheap tickets to Iceland. We're going to go see the Northern Lights. And everyone was like, what? Like, is that what we're doing now? Going to Iceland to, to let our five-year-olds see the Northern Lights? And listen, although I thought it was crazy, I was like, well, shoot, let me know next time. I want to take the girls to go see the, you know, and it's crazy. <laughs> no question. It is no so question. crazy to even think that, you know, because I didn't grow up like that. And I still consider myself a poor kid. You know, I don't, it doesn't matter what circles I move through, how many degrees I have, where I work. I still consider myself a poor kid. And it was so funny in that moment. Like all of us were like, oh, girl, that's what we're doing now. Going to Iceland to see the Northern Lights. Okay. Okay. Still, you know, and, it's just, and it was so, <laughs> it was this moment where I was just like, this is it. I love it. I love black people, but it is, it's very specific. And it, it is has to do with class and privilege, even among us. And um, that is another conversation I have in the book too, because that can, you can, you can be in some uncomfortable situations around that as well. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. 
Okay, you have just wonderfully managed to hit all the different talking points that I have for this conversation. So I'm just going to, I'm going to back up just a second and try to sort them through. Now, first I have to say with respect to your revelation when you got to this Facebook group, you may not remember this. You may be too young to remember this, but Eddie Murphy did a skit in Saturday Night Live back in the day. It's kind of, it's kind of a classic where he puts on white makeup and walks through the world as Mm -hmm. a a white guy, gets on the bus and discovers the bus is free. (laughs) But I can't tell you how many times times as a mother, a new mother, I had those Eddie Murphy moments mm-hmm. when someone would say, oh, you've got to do, there was a music class. You've got to take this music class. And I, I walk into this world where there's a live accompanist on the piano and there's like <laughs> all this stuff for the, for your six month old to look at because they're too little to do anything with. But every turn, at every turn, there was some amazing resource mm-hmm. that I hadn't heard of. A secret some, world. And it was a secret world. And I felt, first of all, really happy to have gained entry to the secret world because I wanted to get as much information as possible. But in the course of this, to your point about class and privilege, it really did always stay with me that I was, I was two things. I was kind of a stranger in a strange land Mm. and I didn't feel like I didn't belong there. Mm. I just felt like this is all new to me. (laughs) And, And I don't know, I don't know this world, but I also felt like there's got to be a way for me to help get this world out to mm. other people. And actually, just as a quick aside, that's actually why I started my blog and this podcast over many years, because I kept running into things where I kept saying, who knew? Who knew about this <laughs> incredible museum of math that you could take your kid to and they could play? And by the time I figured that one out, my kids were all beyond that. But who knew all this stuff? Yes. And it, it, so it, it is, I fully Somebody understand knew. Somebody knew, but you know, I, I noticed it in a talk you were having. Someone was very quick to say, well, what about the people who can't afford this? Yes. Absolutely. You have to be concerned about everyone's black people. All of us who come from in the United States come from humble beginnings, no matter where we are now. All of us, we understand that we are a collective and we also understand that we, there is an obligation and it's not just us that we want to be focused on. I'm particularly drawn to your discussion in the book about your encountering a young little boy named Major mm-hmm. in the park. And, and why don't you tell the story and then I will ask you more about it. In this chapter, that chapter, I call it the invisible mom because it, it is about how class and race are conflated. And in that anecdote, I tell my husband and I and my mother were at the park and there's a park in, in our neighborhood that is just this raw nerve touch point where all of these things collide, right? One, the park used to be an elementary school that was basically emptied out and sat abandoned as people fled the neighborhood. They tore the elementary school down, built this beautiful park in its place and Across the street from the park are is public housing. Right next to the public housing are these new million-dollar condos, right? It's like all this stuff converging. So in this one playground, at any point, you could be there with nannies and just uh, parents, kids from across the street. It's just all the things. And we'd gone there, and this little boy, Major, I call him Major in the book. That's not his real name, who was... Basically, he was cutting up. He was harassing this little white girl, trying to take her bike, and not in a good kid way, not in a friendly right. kid way, right? It right. was like, little boy, right. stop. But his parents were nowhere to be found. Me and my husband are the only black people at the park. And so we, my husband's trying to like step in, right? We see this little black boy who, in our eyes, 
we are responsible for, right? So finally, the dad, I call him band dad, um, in the chapter, he he and his daughter are finally leaving. Like, we convince him. And they're like, okay, this little boy's not going to leave your child alone. Like, you should go. And as he's walking out, he, like, sort of, like, puts his arm around, you know, me and Rob, like, conspiratorially, like, hey. And we're like, ooh, what's he going to say? He's like, hey, can I get your number? And we're thinking, like, okay, we don't know you, but all right. <laughs> can I get your number? You know, because there's all these programs in the city where you guys can get free bikes. And, um, you know, if he really wants a bike. And we're just, like, looking at him. We're thinking, he thinks this is our kid. And he thinks we can't afford bikes, you know? And it's like the first thing, and, and because I have no filter, I'm looking at him, I was like, this is not our bleeping kid, right? And he's just kind of, it then dawns on him as he truly sees us, right? Sees my husband in his slacks and button down, sees me, sees my mother who's dressed, she had just gone to church, sees our daughter playing with her, you know, Montessori toys or what the heck ever she has, right? Mm-hmm. And then sees this little boy And it's kind of like one of these things is not like the other, but he had not realized that at first because he just saw black people and he's mortified, obviously. And then they like run away. He doesn't say anything. They just like, Oh, sorry. And they go. And no, my husband and I are just sitting there with that sort of like moment sinking on us and thinking, what did we want from that? You know, and I think to myself, Mm -hmm. like the question I'm asking myself, like, well, how did I want that? this white man I don't know and will never see again. How did I want him to see me as this, you know, upper middle-class black woman, whatever, as opposed to how I wanted him to see this little boy. And why would I ever want to separate myself from this little boy? Cause I never would. And that's why we, we jumped in. Cause we didn't want these white folks doing something off kilter to this little boy. It was just like this, this yes. really strange yes. situation right. that made me ask myself those questions. Yes. You didn't want them, you want to defend against the stereotyping and the, the, the gentrifying white father was doing. But at the same time, you were, felt an obligation to stop the behavior. Yes. Because at the end of the day, the behavior was not good behavior. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. defend his ability to terrorize the kid. Right. It was more stop because you figured, okay, we need to step in so that this ends as it should end on a playground as opposed to anything mm-hmm. else. And it's so interesting that I, I so I got, I, I mentioned this episode because it really did crystallize in one episode a lot, a lot of what you've been talking about, a lot of what I think a lot of black parents feel if they're truly honest with themselves, if parents that, that are in varying different economic situations. And, and it's funny, when I was reading this, I was feeling, I, I got immediately, it was like, well, okay, why are we offended that this guy thought this was our kid? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, take a step back. We're the only black parents. It's a, but to me, the additional offense was that if, in fact, this was your kid, you couldn't stop him from terrorizing the right. girl. To me, it was like a parent thing. It was like, wait a minute. If this is my kid, you think that we'd be like saying, give up? Right, exactly. <laughs> Go home? <laughs> that, I thought, well, on top of all of that, I mean, at least give me credit for being a parent. I mean, mm-hmm. a good parent. <laughs> right. You raise so many interesting questions in your book that, and I admire that you raise them to the public because they would be perfect questions for a parent group to sort of explore and dive into. It would probably have to be an all black parent group, but, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but Mm -hmm. you've actually by raising them to the public really have sort of lifted up the shade on, um, and let sun into a topic that a lot of people just aren't focused on or, or that don't the complications of being a black mom. 
I, I also, I just have to also ask you, sort of on that same tip, the racist Elsa. I'm not giving away all the stories in your book, I assure you. <laughs> Everybody who's listening, you have to buy the entire book. I really am not telling you everything, but there were so many little juicy stories that I wanted to dive into. Another park incident. You encounter, uh, you talk about another instance where race sort of, not it will impacts your perspective and can you talk a little about this incident with your daughter sort of trying to befriend someone who wasn't uh, sort of reciprocating yes so this is in the chapter the other talk where i talk about the microaggressions that are committed against black children right that we don't really that folks don't one either don't believe or you know they don't see but we as black parents are always on the lookout for And specifically, we're at the park, and because our neighborhood is gentrifying, there are times that we will find ourselves to be the only Black people at the park. And we were there, and there was this little white girl on the bike. And then my daughter, Sally, who, and my daughter is just, you know, the most gregarious person to live, right? She is just, she's the opposite (laughs) of me, honestly. She's very much my husband, where she just wants to make friends with everyone, talk to everyone, all these things. And so this little girl who had been playing with other little white children before we showed up, right? And now it's just like mm-hmm. her and us, people have started to leave. And so Sally had saw this and she was like, boom, like, I want to play too. And she's like trying to play with this girl and the girl's just like ignoring her and then kind of like baiting her. And, you know, as a parent, when you see that, like, my first thought is to... Is, is to let Sally kind of handle it on her own, right? But like, once I started to look and I come at it, I will first to admit, honestly, I come at it with my own baggage, right? My own invisible diaper bag. Uh, but I'm looking at it and I was like, oh, this girl's playing Sally out because she's black, right? She never said anything about it or anything like that. You know, perhaps it was because my daughter was being a little bit aggressive. But mm-hmm. beyond that, mm-hmm. that's that's what I'm thinking. And so, and she doesn't want to play with Sally. Finally, Sally kind of like, you know, slumps, you know, shoulders, hang dog look on her face, shoulder slumped, like goes plays by herself. And I am enraged at this point. And <laughs> like, I just, I, I was so mad about it to the point where I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna play with Sally because I just want to pour into my child and never have her think that she is anything less than awesome. And this, this little girl then rolled up on me. The other little guy, I called her racist Elsa because she had an Elsa costume on, rolled up on me and was like staring me down. And her parents were not there. She was there with her nanny. Just want to point that out as well. And she like rolled up on me and I just looked at her like, hello. And she didn't say anything. I was like, um, <laughs> I was like, um, you know, it's polite to say hello when somebody says hello to you. And she was like, well, I did say hello. And I was like, all right. I was like, it's also polite that if you don't want to play with someone, just let them know you'd like to play alone, right? I was like, but that's okay. Sally's going to have a good time. <laughs> and I went to go play with my child, all these things. I told my husband, he was like, if you don't stop rolling up on little kids at the playground. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. This little girl <laughs> needs to know that was rude, one. And two, she needs to know that I'm always looking. You know what I mean? And my husband was just like, what did you want to get from that situation? I was like, I'm not quite sure. But I know I want my daughter to know she's great. And I want this little girl to know that I am always watching. And I am always aware of the situations that are going on on the playground when it comes to my kid. And it was just, it was this moment I've had when I explained that moment to other moms, other black moms are like, yep, yep, I've done it too. You know, like where you're there and you're just you're constantly looking for this like trap door that your kids can fall into in their interactions. Mm -hmm. But I never want Mm -hmm. Sally to have the burden of that. Right. I don't want her to think that I didn't say to Sally, I was like, Oh, well that girl, you know, she was X, Y, and Z. 
I, it's my job, right? And that's the helicoptering. That's the helicoptering we do as black and brown parents. That's different than the helicoptering that other folks do. It also, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think, points to this larger issue. And I don't say this in the book, but I think this is what I was trying to get to. Is like, I am very clear on the fact that I am raising black children, right? That's very important to me that I'm raising two girls with a black identity. That's not important to every black parent, but it is important to me that my children have a black identity. They see themselves as black women in the world because I know the world sees them that way. And because being black is amazing. Um, And I want them to know that. I know I'm raising black children and all the things that that comes with. I don't think white parents know that they are raising white children. I don't think they recognize that, right? So when things like this happen, right, when you get into these weird microaggressions, racial incidents between little kids, the other parents, the white parents will always say, well, I don't know where they get that from. And it's like, yes, you do. They get it from your house. Just like mine, get get it from my house. But you don't think you're raising white kids. If we sit and talk and we've had this racial reckoning and we talk about, you know, white and black interactions, who are who are the white people who raised them? Where are those white people coming from? They're not mythic. You know, they exist. Who's raising them? You are. And they don't want to delve into that. And that's another, I think, goal of the book, I think, is for parents to realize that and to recognize that and to see that. Obviously, I wrote the book for parent, women who look like me, moms who look like me, to see themselves and, and be validated by the experiences that they're going through. But I want other parents, non-Black and brown parents, to see it and look and say, oh, this is what these people are going through. This is, these are some of the things that I'm bringing to the table. These are things my child is bringing to the table. Because you're raising white kids. White kids exist. Who's raising them? You are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought a lot about this section as well. And, and because what struck me about this encounter is the burden that we as parents put on ourselves. Or we, we, you know, we've, it's always said we parent, we come to parenting as we've been parented. We bring our own all of our thoughts, baggage, concepts, baggage, <laughs> everything there, which is it, instances like this. It becomes more complicated because. As you said, your reaction to this little girl was your reaction to this little girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw your daughter was disappointed that she wouldn't play with her. You had written the entire story of why. I mean, and, and with, with good reason. I mean, it was a gut. It was a good gut. But <laughs> you came at it from a very specific perspective. And the good thing that you did not then proceed to tell your daughter all the reasons why the next time she tries to play with a white girl and she doesn't <laughs> want to play with her, that all this is, you know, the, the cloud of all that. But it's such a burden. We carry such a weight mm-hmm. to, to feel this way. That incident really took me back to my daughter's preschool. And I sent my children to this preschool that was predominantly white, almost wholly white, but they had black teachers. And I, my children had black mm. teachers. My daughter comes home from school and preschool and says, none of the other kids are playing with me. Mm. So, you know... <laughs> I marched over to the school immediately. Yes. And it's like, I had an all school meeting. It's like, oh, no, no, no. My daughter is telling me that these kids are not playing with her. This is not what I signed up for, not what I'm paying for. You guys have to fix this immediately. Mm. And so like good preschool people, they all kind of sort of observed and they said, okay, give us a couple of days. And they came back to me and they said, and the black teachers, I got all black teachers in there. It's like, make sure you understand, <laughs> help me understand what's happening. And the head of the school called me to talk about this. And she said, we observed her for two days. And, you know, we talked to the teachers and we went in the classroom and we discovered that she actually is sitting in the corner of the play area, 
just sitting there waiting for people that she wants to, to come and play with her. If somebody's near and she doesn't want to play with mm-hmm. them, she says, no, she's waiting. And and truth be told, my daughter at that point was really shy. Yeah. She was very introverted. And it had not occurred to me that any of this could have been anything that she had anything to do with. I thought she was being targeted and yeah. I was all set to sort of blow up the school in the yes. process. The head of the school said to me, first of all, we're going to fix this. We're going to help her figure out how to get people to play with her. But also her ability to observe before jumping in is something that she should, that's who she is. And you should not try to change that, Mm -hmm. but she's going to have to learn how to work with that in social settings. So they actually did what educators are supposed to do. They observe something and they help me figure out how to help her. And I, I, I came away from that incident thinking, you know, the tax of that experience on me. Yes. <laughs> she was spared all of it, thank goodness, except she knew that they weren't playing with her and then they were. But as black moms, I, I worry a little that sometimes we, as with all the other stuff that we have to do, mm-hmm. that we don't give ourselves any room. Like we're always, we're so concerned about all of the things that we are trying to protect our children from that I, I think we, we sort of have to figure out how to make room for learning about our kids and learning about who they are and not just who they are as black kids, they're mm-hmm. who they are as children. And the one other thing I will say to you as the mom of very grown children is that this all changes when your children start to make friends on their own. Right. When I get taken out of the equation. Exactly. Because it is in this world that they live in now, um, and especially now, I mean, my kids are older, but and the, the environments that they're in, they're not the environments that we were brought up in. And their take on friendship and trusting people and loyalty and what it means to be a black person is different. Yes. As parents, we have to really figure out how to stay kind of open-minded. This is a whole nother conversation about what happens when, you know, your children choose their friends and they're, they're in groups that you don't think they should be comfortable mm-hmm. in. So anyway, it is, but. Look, I, 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 like you, really focus on parenting from a point of joy. So I don't look at it as a tax, but I'm really, I've, I've always felt this way. And I'm glad you're writing about the sort of extra, all the extra. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all, all of the extra. Because it can weigh you down. It can, re- it, it can absolutely weigh you down. And I think I try to, one of the reasons why I talk about in the book, in our, in my other group, the Black Moms group why we we try to get together every I mean we're we see each other all the time but we also try to get together a lot just to have the kids run around together in this park or or um at the the movie nights or whatever it is and it's always those moments always feel like a, a release those moments always feel like okay we're not worried about all the other stuff. And we found how important that is. And, and those moments, right? Because you're right. The weight of worrying about so many things can actually have wear and tear on your body, right? Linda, uh, via Gorosa, I believe she's an incredible journalist. She has a book out now. Um, but she had written this story from the New York times years ago about pregnant black women and how the maternal, outcomes, right? The maternal morbidity rate, why it can be so high for many reasons, but part of it is just like racism, right? Just like the fact that literally walking around worrying about so many things, having to worry about so many things. It's not like we're worrying about it just because, like we're worrying about it because we know what happens when we don't. 
We know what happens when we take our foot off the gas. We know what happens when we're not paying attention, but that can have a wear and tear on our, on our physical bodies, our spiritual selves. So I think for us, making sure we move in so many different groups, right? So yes, I have the group that's, that is, that looks like this and the other group that looks like this and the other group that looks like this. So I can feel comfortable in as many spaces as possible. So I can let my hair down. So I can just experience the joy, right? Because it is so joyful. You know, I have two little girls, they're hilarious. And I just want to sit in that in the moments where I think that I'm doing this right. And all the work and crazy stuff that (laughs) that's running through my head makes sense is because the girls are so carefree, right? My, my children are so, so carefree. Um, And that's, that's my goal. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's true. And and I imagine not only are they carefree, but they're absorbing. They're they're richer for having absorbed all the stuff that you're making all this effort to <laughs> fill them up with. <laughs> just the joy and the the carefree as you said, the the sort of the ability to be just a kid who's loved mm-hmm. and and appreciated is is something that I'm so glad that in the course of all the things you talk about in your book that are burdens and that the core of it is that it's pretty, it's still pretty awesome. And that that awesomeness can actually be shared across racial and economic spectra. I mean, Mm -hmm. that part, there's a commonality of that part of parenting that makes getting those groups together a, a good thing. Helena, I thank you so much. I have like 45 other topics here that I could go through because the book really did speak to me in that way. And I I appreciate, again, that you've written it. But I will close here with asking you to play the GCP lightning round. So I just, there are just, yes, four quick questions. So give me your favorite poem or saying. Um, And, you know, I have to open it up. It is from the book Liberté. Um, by Caitlin Greenidge. And it is this quote that I, when I read it, I like wrote it down. And one of the main characters says, being a mother means being someone's God, if only briefly. And that like, when I read that, I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it spoke to me in so many different ways, good and bad. No. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Now your favorite two children's books, and these can be a combination of something you loved growing up, um, or and what you read to your kids, or uh, wherever you find them. Uh, so a book I really loved growing up, and it's something I think I read in like fifth or sixth grade. It's Virginia Hamilton's The Magical Adventures of Pretty Pearl. She blends African American and African folklore about gods and enslaved people and native people. Uh, and then what I, I read the girls is a book that they love um, is called How to Trick the Tooth Fairy by Erin Danielle Russell. And it's about this little brown girl and she's got this just cloud of gorgeous natural curls. And it's just about her cutting up with the tooth fairy and they're playing tricks on each other all night and Sally loves it. She's loved it since she was three. And now we, now that she's actually losing teeth, she loves it even more. And her sister, Robin just loves whatever Sally loves. So um, Robin loves it too, but it's, and it's just like just beautifully rendered, beautifully illustrated. Um, yeah. It's one of their favorites. Great. So give me a mom moment that you just love to do over. 
And I don't mean, I mean, uh, not that was so great that you want to do it again. <laughs> One that you'd like to redo. <laughs> like to redo. And oh gosh, I, I thought about this because I thought about this question before. Um, I want to redo a lot of moments. I will say that I am not the most patient person. Uh, and motherhood has not made me more patient. But I have learned in this, you know, short amount of time that like showing them that I am a person who gets frustrated easily, but that I recognize it um, is just as important. So often like I'll, you know, I'll lose it and I'll be like, you know what? Mommy needs a moment. That wasn't the proper response. I'm sorry, girls. And they, and they get that. And, and like showing them that it's like my process, um, I think it's just as important, but those are the moments where I'm just like, why did you have your shoes? I mean, just this morning, I was like, why does no one have their shoes on? You know? And I'm just like, (laughs) I could chill. I could be more chill about getting shoes on, but we also have to get to school in 15 minutes. What are y'all doing? I always want to take any time in the morning, any time between like 7.55 and 8.10, I most likely want to take back, but they recognize that mommy, (laughs) mommy is a work in progress. Yeah, no question. I mean, the fact that Every time you can say to your kid, honestly, and mean it, look, you know, I didn't do that so great. I'm going to do that a little differently. You know, right. I'd love, they love right. that. I mean, it's you're human. And then finally, a moment when you knew you nailed it as a mom, one of your favorite mom moments. Um, I would say, and this, as the girls get older, because I, I, you know, I grew up as the only child. So having more than one child was like really important to us. Um, and I think the... <laughs> best moments for me it's not a particular moment is when the girls are really good to each other like you know, they're they're close in age they're only like two less than two and a half years apart and I stress and probably I shouldn't but I'm just constantly like this is your sister be good to your sister this is you know this is your best friend we just bought them some bunk beds and they have been waking up in the top of course they all want the top bunk but Sally's older she gets the top bunk and they wake up every morning in that top bunk together And it is the sweetest thing in the morning going in and seeing them, even though they probably fought all night the night before. I don't know how Robin ended up there, but they always wake up together in that top bunk. And it just like, just thinking about it it makes me teary because like every mom, like, okay, they're, if, if those two are tight into a, into and through adulthood, I will have done my job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. Wow, Elena, those are great answers, and I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you uh, for everyone listening. If you have not bought this book yet, stop what you're doing, <laughs> run out, or go online, whatever, because it is, um, you've really, it's a great book, and you really, it's just really thought provoking, and you've asked a lot of questions that I think, I think moms everywhere, but especially black moms, really should think about and, and, and want to know more about. So thank you so much. Thanks for, joining the podcast. Thank you. This was awesome. This was a great conversation, Carol. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.